Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. Spring is coming. Have crocuses or snowdrops bloomed where you live? Gardening is one of my joys. I know so many of you embrace it too. So we've invited back one of our favorite gardening gurus to answer your spring gardening questions. Are you getting ready to start some seeds? Or do you have questions about what shrubs to trim? Are you eagerly waiting for that last frost date? Here's the number to call 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. With me for the hour is Charlie Nardozzi. He's a horticulturist and host of the Connecticut Garden Journal on Connecticut Public Radio. He's the author of many gardening books. My go-to is New England Month-by-Month Gardening. Charlie, welcome back to the show. It's good to be here, Lucy. Now, you have a new book, The Complete Guide to No-Dig Gardening. So tell us about exactly what you mean when you say no-dig gardening. Well, like most gardeners, you know, you go through an evolution of different gardening styles through your whole career, your whole life of gardening. And I've been an organic gardener for many, many years. But I've always wondered about this idea of not having to turn the soil and dig the soil. You know, it's been something that's very popular in agriculture recently, the no-till agriculture, to reduce erosion on a lot of our farmlands. And so I started looking into it and started experimenting and found that, that in fact, a lot of people around the world have been doing this technique called no-dig gardening for many years very successfully. And there's lots of good reasons not to dig or turn or till your soil. Uh, What it does is, of course, it leaves that soil intact. So once you build up a real nice bed of soil, a rich soil with organic materials and really healthy soil, every time you turn it or till it or dig it, what you're doing is destroying a lot of the microbes in the soil. And you're breaking up that structure of the soil that helps with water and nutrient and airflow. So by not doing that and just building on the soil, kind of mimicking what nature does, you're actually creating a healthier soil, uh, not only for your plants, but also for the planet, too. So when I think of no-dig gardening, I'm thinking of raised bed gardening. Is that how it works, Charlie? For the most part, yeah. In the book, I talk about a couple of different variations. Uh, no, the simplest one would be, of course, just to get a mix of topsoil and compost and put it in a raised bed and then start from there with all the de- different planting and maintenance techniques that I talk about. Um, and certainly the multi-layered approach is probably the most common one where you're layering it kind of like a, a compost pile where you're putting in chopped leaves, um, hay, straw, um, grass clippings from untreated lawns, compost, just kind of alternating those layers until you reach the top, and then you cap it all with some compost. A third one I mentioned, though, is one from people you're probably familiar with her name, Ruth Stout, a Connecticut resident who was very popular back in the 1970s. And she did a technique of no dig called deep mulching, where she kept a, an 8 to 10 inch thick layer of chopped leaves and hay on her garden year round. And she just slowly watched as that soil kept getting built up and built up. She didn't till it or anything. To plant, she just moved the the mulch aside and planted her seeds and transplants in it. And it was very successful for her. her. She became very popular. Wrote some books, too. 
When people think about gardening, they get an idea of what looks good and what maybe their neighbors have tried. And so when we think about no-dig gardening, people should throw out the idea of just being concerned about the aesthetic. Uh, well, somewhat. You know, everyone wants to have a beautiful looking garden and no dig doesn't necessarily mean you're not going to have a beautiful looking garden, but it's going to have, shall we say, a messy stage <laughs> because <laughs> one of the techniques that I try to encourage people to do with no dig is, is in the late summer and fall as you're getting ready to put the beds to the gardens to bed is to do something called chop and drop. So instead of pulling out your broccoli plants, pulling out your pepper plants, pulling out your uh, celosia plants or zinnia plants, as long as they're not heavily diseased infested, just take a hedge trimmer and literally chop them into little pieces right down to the ground and leave all that organic material there. The idea is that that organic material is going to protect the soil through the winter from erosion from the wind and rain and snow and all of that. It's going to protect the, the microbes, uh, of which there are billions of them literally in the soil, um, and protect the, the structure that's there. And then in the spring, you just come in with a layer of compost on top of whatever didn't decompose, and you plant right through it. So it could look a little messy. There could be some chunks of stem and things still around. But quickly, once your new plants are in there and growing, they're going to cover it all up and your garden's going to be healthier for it. I'm always planning new beds, Charlie, and, and before winter, we like to lay down cardboard where we want to put our, our next garden. And so I'm wondering in the spring, if I do this, you're saying maybe putting a mix of compost and topsoil to start it? Uh, yes. So if you do the, the basic one, uh, sure. And the, the simplest way to, to approach it, if you're starting out new, like you're talking about, Lucy, is if you're just doing it on your lawn and your lawn doesn't have a lot of real tenacious weed, it doesn't have a lot of quack grass and, th and ground ivy and things like that. It's just regular lawn grass, maybe a little clover in it. You can just mow it down really short and then put newspaper down. So you don't even have to go to the cardboard route and put four layers of a newsprint down as long as that newsprint is not a glossy paper. So anything that's black and white or even colored ink is okay because it's all soy based. Uh, put that down and then start putting your layers that I had mentioned before, the different organic materials. You can leave it freestanding or you can enclose it with a wooden box or metal box or stone or whatever it is, whatever kind of setup you want to have. But if you have tenacious weeds, say you're going into maybe a little weedier area, not on your lawn, but on the side of the lawn where there's uh, brambles there or there's goldenrod there, those then you might want to use cardboard. And actually, you might want to use a number of layers of cardboard in the bottom of that bed. Um, make sure it's down. Take all the staples and tape and everything off of it um, and then build on top of that. The cardboard will eventually break down, but it will take a, a year or two, depending on how many layers you have. And that hopefully will kill off those real tenacious weeds you might have in there. You're hearing Charlie Nardozzi here on Where We Live. He's a horticulturist. We're talking about his new book, The Complete Guide to No Dig Gardening. But here to answer all of your gardening questions, here's the number to call 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I remember, Charlie, last year we spoke to you uh, after the pandemic began and we talked about victory gardens and people having uh, more of an interest in gardening because so many of us were spending more time at home. Is that demand still keeping up uh, as we head into spring uh, as a year after this pandemic started? Uh, yes, it is. And that's it's very encouraging that way. Now, I, I talked to seed companies, for example, and you might have noticed, Lucy, if we've been trying to order seeds, that a lot of them have sold out of many varieties. 
Um, the, the urge to, to garden is still there amongst a lot of people. Uh, some of the statistics I've seen is that there's over 16 million new gardeners that are out there based on the pandemic. And the interesting thing about those statistics is one of the ones that really caught my eye is that when, when we asked them why they are gardening, of course, many of them just said, because of the pandemic, I'm at home, I've got more time. But another reason was mental health. And I think that's something that's really important to kind of remember about gardening is that it's good for so many reasons, growing your own food and flowers, exercise, fresh air, but it's also good just to be able to relax and be de-stressed a little bit in our lives. I'm glad you mentioned exercise. I have a, a friend, uh, Julie Harrison, who does uh, landscape design in the town I live, and she mentioned it's one of the best uh, full-body workouts for you, Charlie, when you're out there getting <laughs> all your gardening work done. Yeah, I always think I'm in pretty good shape when I start the garden season. Then after a good day out in the garden, it's like, oh, not so much. I got a lot of sore muscles here. <laughs> you mentioned uh, seeds and the demand, a lot of seed companies selling out. I remember that happening last year. This year I ordered early. I learned my ah. lesson. But uh, <laughs> someone is asking or wanting to remind that there are so many great uh, local seed companies in Connecticut. Uh, Sandra on Facebook mentioning Hearts, uh, Select Seeds. I love John Sheepers myself. Uh, Charlie, do you have some recommendations for, for people to try if they're just starting out? Uh, some different varieties, you mean, Lucy? Uh, different companies or oh, places different that companies, people should sure. look to. Uh, yeah, definitely look for local and regional companies. I usually try to expand it because there's a lot of great companies in places like Vermont, where I live. Um, the High Mowing is a really nice company. They do all, all organic seed. And, of course, the, the one that's been around for many years and kind of one that I grew up with, you might say, is Johnny's Selected Seeds in Maine. Um, Pine Tree Gardens is another nice one in Maine. Uh, they ha they're nice because they, you can buy small packets of seeds for them that are not as expensive. There's fewer seeds, but it's a great way to try new varieties. You know, you don't maybe have to find a tomato you want to try, but you don't need 30 seeds of it. Maybe you only need 10. So you can get a smaller packet that's a little less expensive through them. Tracy wrote on Facebook, recently bought a condo and it came with a small yard. That's mostly weeds. The soil there is very compacted. Uh, Tracy doesn't have a lot of time or money, but wants to know what's one impactful thing that uh, she could do to, to better um, get a better looking and smelling lawn, Charlie. <laughs> so if she wants to grow lawn grass, first of all, Tracy, you want to make sure you have enough sun. Uh, because that's going to dictate what kind of lawn grass you're growing. Uh, so if you have a lot of sun, you want to look for a mix that's heavier in Kentucky bluegrass. If you have more shade or part shade, then you want to get a mix that's heavier in the fine fescues or the tall fescue grasses, because those are grasses that are adapted to those conditions. But the other thing that's most important is, of course, organic matter. So if you can put compost down, if you can put layers of organic matter with some compost, even if you just in the fall chopped up leaves and left it on the ground, all of that's going to help build up the fertility of that soil so that when you do try to come in and sow grass seed or create a little garden for yourself, um, you're going to be one step ahead of the game. Uh, mentioning um, also the importance of, of planting uh, natives, Charlie, What's, what are some plants that Tracy could look for? Uh, yeah, so if you want to grow some native plants uh, in your garden, again, depending upon sun and shade, is going to dictate mm -hmm. what kind of plants you're doing. But if you're doing a small little perennial garden, for example, um, you can look for all different kinds of natives. You know, the asters are a, a really common one that's out there. I mentioned goldenrod as a weed, but there's actually some beautiful versions of goldenrod that are dwarf and short and, and easy to grow. Um, that's another nice native plant to grow. 
Um, echinacea, of course, is a really good one, but you have to be careful with the echinaceas and the rudbeckias that, that are native, not necessarily to New England, but they are native to the, the continent. Um, because they've been doing a lot of hybridizing with these plants. And some of them have hybrid, been hybridized so much that they don't even look like the original anymore. And it might be a very interesting plant to look at, but it's not so great for our pollinators and beneficial insects. So if that's one of the reasons you're gardening, you want to stick with the natives closer to the original species. The number to call to ask a gardening question, 888-720-9677. Again, Charlie Nardozzi is here with us, host of the Connecticut Garden Journal on Connecticut Public Radio. Barbara is calling in from Wallingford. Hi, Barbara. Hi, how are you? Doing well. What's your question? Um, we have a pussy willow tree that's quite old, and we have pruned it somewhat. But over the years, it's gotten taller and taller and taller and taller. And now to actually um, cut some of the pussy willows, you really need a high ladder. And so my question is, it's, it's a very vigorous thing. I mean, we've, we've transplanted it and replanted it, and it, it always thrives. Can I cut it way down drastically so that next year the pussy willows will be more manageable in order to harvest them? Or should I wait until a different season or a different time of year? They're starting to put out the pussy willows now. Uh, yes. So, uh, Barbara, I would say definitely you can cut it way back. In fact, that's the people who commercially produce pussy willows, that's what they do. They're always cutting the back those uh, trees or shrubs because you're, you'll notice that the pussy willows are forming. Like you're saying, they're way at the top. They're forming on the one-year-old growth. So if you can cut it back now, you'll be sacrificing some of those pussy willows. Maybe wait a little bit so you can enjoy some of the pussy willows once they pop out. But then cut it back this spring uh, so that you get some more shoots coming out from the base of that plant. And you can cut it right down to the ground or to a stump that's maybe a foot or so tall. It doesn't really matter too much um, because it'll just sprout back up. And then next year, your pussy willows will be lower to the ground. And then you can kind of start over, you know, continuing to do that every few years or so, cut them way back. Thank you, Barbara, for your call. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677. Again, 888-720-WMPR. Before we head to break, Charlie, uh, someone was asking that, is there a way to test the soil without sending it to to Yukon's lab? Well, Yukon's lab's pretty good. Yep. <laughs> so I would definitely encourage you to do that because uh, they are the scientists and they give you a nice, accurate reading and a good interpretation. But if you are a junior scientist and you want to do it yourself, there are some soil test kits you can get. Um, Lamotte's is one of the, the famous ones. Some of them are very scientific, much more of a, a kind of a chemical kit where you, you're mixing chemicals in with your soil. Others are just uh, very simple. But they'll give you a snapshot view of their pH and some of the nutrients that are in your soil. But if you really want a detailed analysis, I would go with UConn. Again, Charlie Nardozzi is here. He is a horticulturist, has many books, including The Complete Guide to No-Dig Gardening. Charlie just gave us some good tips to start no-dig if you're interested in that type of gardening. Ken shared on Facebook, Charlie, that I've been experimenting with no-dig for a couple of years and love it. I cover the garden in the fall with last year's compost. In the spring after planting, I put down six inches of mulch hay to cover everything and keep the moisture in. I rarely have to weed and do minimal watering. Sounds like it's working for Ken. Yeah, great, Ken. You know, that's a good point. That's another advantage is that because you're not tilling, you're not bringing the weed seeds up to the soil surface. And when you don't do that, of course, you don't get weed seeds germinating. 
And I know some people uh, shy away from using hay versus straw as a mulch. And I think hay, uh, Ken mentioned he uses hay. And I think it's fine to use hay as long as you keep a thick layer because the hay seeds that might be in there drop to the bottom. But if there's a thick layer of mulch on top of it that's never uh, totally decomposed, it'll block those seeds from germinating. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We'll be back after a short break. Again, you can call us with a gardening question, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We're focused on the garden today with my guest, Charlie Nardozzi, host of the Connecticut Garden Journal on Connecticut Public Radio. He's also the author of many gardening books, including the new one, The Complete Guide to No Dig Gardening. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Charlie, we heard Barbara ask a pruning question, so this is the time to prune. Do you have some more recommendations for people who have fruit trees or shrubs? Um, we could do a whole show just on fruit, <laughs> but I'll, I'll try to be succinct about this. Uh, if you have fruit trees like apples and plums and peaches and pear trees, uh, yes, this is the time to do it right now, all the way up to those buds start swelling. Uh, the weather is warmer, the snow is all gone, it's easier to get out there, it's easier to see what's happening. The general rule with pruning fruit trees, you know, it varies, of course, depending on the fruit tree, but the general rule is anything that's dead, diseased, or broken, you can remove that almost at any time. But you also want to just open up a lot of these trees. So if they have a lot of sucker growth, a lot of water sprouts coming off the branches or suckers from the root system, those you always want to remove. If you have crossing branches, branches that are rubbing each other, you want to remove one of those, opening them up. Uh, trees like peaches and plums like a more open center to them um, because that lets light in and you get more fruit production in the center of the tree. Uh, trees like apples tend to be kind of, depending on the varieties, of course, uh, tend to uh, have what we call a modified leader, meaning that they do have an open center, but they still have a formed leader going through the center. And then there's pear trees that grow straight up and down. <laughs> and they just that's just what they want to do. Uh, you can try to spread the branches a little bit with those. Um, but that's a little more involved. So for fruit trees, this is definitely the time. And for some shrubs, ones that bloom on what we call the new growth, the, the growth that's going to be coming out this spring, um, like the panicle hydrangeas, for example, or butterfly bushes or rose of Sharon, those can be pruned in the spring. The ones that flower in the spring, like the forsythia and the rhododendrons and the spireas and all the ones we'll be seeing in the next few months, those you want to prune right after they're done flowering. Claire is calling in from Hartford with a pruning question. Claire, go ahead. Perfect. Hi. Um, I uh, bought my house 20 years ago, and it came with a fig plant. And I'm told that I'm supposed to be wrapping it in burlap and, and all kinds of things. I do nothing, and it makes wonderful figs. <laughs> ah, it, well, look at you. Can I come and, over and, and harvest some? <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Well, that's unusual because Connecticut is very borderline as far as growing figs outdoors. And like you're saying, people go to extremes to protect their outdoor figs with insulation and burlap and, and hay mulch. But if you've found a spot in your property where they can grow and they come back year after year, and I assume you get figs. Is that correct, Claire? Oh, absolutely. 
At yeah, West. okay. So well, I, you're all this, set. <laughs> this last year was wonderful. My question is, it's not a tree. You know, we always hear about under your vine and fig tree. This is just a bunch of limbs coming out of a middle, and I'm wondering if I should be pruning it somehow to turn it into a tree or what to do with all those limbs? All, all the limbs, yes. Uh, so does it die back to the ground, or, is it, or the limbs oh, survive, no. too? The limbs are all there, and oh, they're okay. putting out little yes. points on them, ready to go again. <laughs> Great. Well, fig trees don't really require a lot of pruning. You can certainly try to favor a branch that's towards the center to become your center leader, but there's really no need to do any of that. You could just trim out some of the center branches just to open it up a little bit, get a nice airflow through it. Um, that might help it if you've seen some diseases on the leaves, but it doesn't sound like that's been an issue at all. So if you want to just do it for aesthetics, just to kind of clean it up a little bit, it's fine to do that. Again, you can join us with your gardening question, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Before we move on from pruning, Kelly tweeted, Lilacs, my plants are two stories high. I know I need to cut them back hard, but I can see they've already have buds for the year, and I feel guilty doing it. Charlie, what should she do? Oh, this is the eternal problem with lilacs. We look at them, we say they're too big, but then you see the flower bud and say, oh, I can't prune them now. They flower and then we forget about them. <laughs> and then the next year we go through the whole cycle again. So what she should do is put it on her calendar. So in June, put it on your calendar, prune the lilacs. So that would be after they're done flowering. And just as she was saying, you want to prune them hard. If they're two stories high and you don't want them that high, you can prune them down literally to the ground if you want to. But usually I tell people down about two to three feet tall, removing uh, all those branches and the side branch and leave some of the side branches there. It'll take a couple of years for them to get back to a nice shrub shape and get to back to flowering. But in this way, you'll have a smaller bush that's going to be much more rewarding. Prune in June. That's easy to learn. <laughs> yeah, it rhymes. <laughs> Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677. Catherine calling in from Rocky Hill. Go ahead, Catherine. Oh, sorry. Um, I am I'm calling because my... Um, my kids want to put in some berry bushes, and the best place in the yard would be next to the the property line. And so I'm wondering, what are some, like, non-invasive ones so the neighbors don't get upset with us? Oh, you can make your neighbors very happy, Catherine, especially <laughs> if you have a lot of sun, by doing a bed of blueberries. Um, you can okay. grow the high bush blueberries that you see at the blueberry farms all over the state, or you can do half-high blueberries. Uh, there's varieties that grow only two to three feet tall, uh, North Country, North Sky, for example. Um, and those are a little bit shorter, a little more manageable. But I think by creating a nice raised bed right along the property line, uh, make sure you, you lower the pH in that soil by adding sulfur. You can do a little soil uh, test before you even do any of that. And then plant your uh, berry bushes. Make sure you get two or three different varieties, uh, some that bloom a little bit earlier, some a little later to extend the season. And then you invite your neighbor over for blueberry pancakes, and you'll just make them your best friends. Yeah, but raspberries and blackberries are out, probably. Raspberries and blackberries you could do, but you're going to have to put some kind of border around them, uh, whether it be um, an edging uh, that's around them or, or something that's going to prevent them from going into your neighbor's yard. Because, yes, they do spread. Does that need to be... Like, do you have to bury it to keep the roots out or just, yes. just a barrier? Yeah, so if you're using either metal or plastic or even wood, uh, for that matter, you want to go down a good, I would say, 8 to 10 inches into the soil okay. um, and then come up above the soil line, too. 
I'll make a little raised bed out of them. You know, if it's all okay. lawn around that, it shouldn't be too much of an issue because as they're mowing their lawn and you're mowing your lawn, you're going to be mowing down those little shoots as they pop up. Okay, wonderful. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks for calling. And Charlie Nardozzi again is here on Where We Live. He's a horticulturist and he can answer your gardening questions. Again, the number 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. We mentioned that this is a good time to start seeds for, for people who may, uh, this might be their first time, Charlie. Can you run through the basic uh, supplies that someone needs uh, to start uh, growing? Yeah, so the first thing is you do want to have some grow lights. And I know a lot of people are very tempted, especially on sunny days, to, to put the little seedlings in the window. But they will get leggy even this time of year, even in a south-facing window. So it's nice to have grow lights set up. So there are some really much more energy efficient, smaller, more attractive units out there now. You can either put it together yourself or buy it all as a kit. Um, a lot of these are compact fluorescent tubes, which are full spectrum tubes that allow you to grow plants um, really easy, keeping them nice and short and stocky. Um, and then when you're moving them outside, they're going to grow much better. So having a nice grow light set up is nice. And, and if you get a nice one, you can actually put it you know, upstairs in your living room or in kitchen or somewhere like that um, and have uh, plants in there year round. It could be uh, flowers and some indoor plants, too. Um, once you have that, of course, you want to do a little assessment of this is what I'll be doing this weekend, kind of looking at all the pots, <laughs> what's left over from last year, selecting the ones that are in still good shape, and then I'll be cleaning them with a 10% Clorox bleach solution to disinfect them um, for the growing season. Um, getting some potting soil would be really nice. I like to use an organic potting soil, so one that has a little uh, compost into it. Uh, some people like avoiding peat moss because it is something that is mined and it supposedly is renewable, but it takes a long time for a peat bog to come back. So you can look for one that has coir, C-O-I-R in it. That's um, the husks of coconuts. And that's a really nice ingredient in a lot of these potting soil mixes. Um, but get that stuff together. And of course, your seeds, as you were talking about, Lucy, maybe they're, they were like you and they ordered early, so you're all ready to go. <laughs> uh, and then do a little uh, calendar about when to start what, because this is the one thing that a lot of people kind of jump the gun a little too soon. So for example, a lot of people may be wanting to plant tomatoes today or this weekend. That's not such a good idea. Tomatoes only need four to six weeks indoors, and then you put them outside. So if you do the math, that would be mid-April and it's still too cold to put tomatoes out. So looking at the last frost date for your area, and that could vary in the state from end of April to end of May almost, if you're up in the, the hills, um, using that as your guide, then you figure out how many weeks indoors these plants need to grow. So tomatoes need four to six weeks, peppers and eggplants a little longer, six to eight weeks. Um, I have my onions and uh, leeks already started because they can take, you know, up to 10 or 12 weeks indoors and do really well. Um, but flowers like zinnias need four weeks and basil only needs three to four weeks. So figuring that out, you can create a little seed starting calendar so you're not jumping the gun. And then when you're ready to plant in May sometime, the middle of the end of the month, whenever it is, uh, your plants will be in the right shape for your garden. Charlie, I've done all these things. I feel validated. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Lucy, look what happens when we do the show together for a few years. <laughs> You can join our conversation on gardening, 888-720-9677. Carlos is calling in from Wolkett. Carlos, are you there? Yes, how you doing, uh, Lucy and Charlie? Yep, we're doing well. Go ahead. Um, I would love to start a garden, um, but I have a problem with sinkholes and erosion. Um, 
the the original owner of the house um, put in. We have wetlands back there, so he put in a, um, a pond, and I, I I feel like this pond is kind of taken away from the backstop, so a lot of the the yard is just uh, sinking and just not level. I, I try to put some soil down, so I'm wondering what 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 kind of specialist should I be trying to get in contact with to remedy the uh, problem. Well, I think someone who would know about excavation and drainage tiles and, and draining, because that might be what's going on. Uh, part of the reason you might have sinkholes, too, is depending upon what was buried when they built the house or what was, you know, a lot of times when builders come in, they're, they're ripping down trees and they have stumps and they just bury all that stuff, put some soil over it, and put the lawn grass on it, and, and that's that. But as those materials start decomposing, they, of course, will create these sinkholes or these indentations. So I think if you want to talk to an excavator about the, the water flow in your yard, that would be a good idea. Someone who has an experience with ponds um, probably would be a good person to talk with. And maybe you do need some drains in to help move the water there. Even if you have the sinkholes and the, and the low spots that are in there, I think with raised beds, if you're raising on top of what you have in an existing area, that might be a nice way to start gardening and kind of get yourself going with a couple of raised beds in, in the right spot and a nice sunny spot bringing in some new soil. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677. Speaking of erosion and also places in the yard where flooding occurs, uh, Katie wants to know, uh, every spring the yard gets very swampy. Is there a tree that she can plant that can live in this swampy area, maybe soak up some water? Oh, yes, there are. There are a number of them. Uh, depending on how big a tree you want, you can go to like a silver maple, which uh, likes wet areas. I often see it when I'm paddling around, um, literally inundated under a foot or two of water in the spring. Uh, but they thrive in those conditions. But that's a big tree. That's a maple tree. So uh, you may not want to go that big. Um, but if you do want to do a big tree, those are good. Willow trees, of course, are really good. You have to be a little bit careful with the willow because the roots can be uh, pretty aggressive. But you can get some bush willows and the shiki willow, for example, is a nice Japanese willow that stays uh, kind of small bush like it can kind of get big and a little out of control. But just like we were talking earlier about the pussy willows, you can cut it way back and it'll grow up. Uh, they do pretty well. The red osier dogwood is a native dogwood that does well in kind of wetter areas. And even some of the hollies, if you have some spots that have little, I guess you call them hillocks, you know, little mounds in those wet areas where the, the wetness is around it, but they're not, the roots are not sitting in that water. Some of the deciduous uh, winter berries uh, would be a good choice too. Again, you can join us. Charlie Nardozzi is here. He's host of the Connecticut Garden Journal on WNPR. The number to call, 888-720-9677. Sewell's calling in from Guilford. Go ahead, Sewell. Oh, hi. Um, can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Okay. Um, so I have been interested in this idea of no-till for a while, and I, like Charlie suggested, um, I have some cardboard out on my lawn um, to try to kill the grass. Um, but I'm wondering um, if that's the best method if I don't want to do raised beds um, because I've started so many seedlings that I want to expand my garden. Um, mm -hmm. So will I be able to get enough soil in there to start this year um, to expand? Yeah. Yeah, Sewell. So, uh, yes, you know, raised beds can, and, and no-dig gardening, it can be a number of different variations or types of it. Uh, one of the simplest things to do is what I call 
lot of people call it the lasagna garden method. So in that, you just use a couple layers. So you could start with the cardboard like you did, and that's great. You got it down early, so it's going to start decomposing and killing the, the grass and plants underneath it. Then you can come in with some hay or mulch. So it could be like a six-inch layer of hay or straw mulch on top of that. And then you put compost on top of that. Now, if you do that now or, or soon, and you wait maybe a month or two, if you put a thick enough layer of compost on top, I'd say about a six inch thick layer, you can plant right into that in May and June. It shouldn't be an issue. Um, and what'll end up happening is that through the growing season this year, um, that whole area, even though it'll start out a little bit raised, it'll just kind of sink down. And then it'll, uh, we did this with expanding one of our perennial gardens. Within six months, it looked like it had always had been there. It was that kind of, just kind of sunk down. The plants were all got all established and everything worked out fine. So I think you can do the no dig uh, method. You just don't have to do as many layers. You just do a couple layers and, and make sure you have enough compost. Thank you, Sol, for your question uh, again. Charlie Nardozzi is here on Where We Live, 888-720-9677. Uh, Alan Noosh is calling in from Greenwich. Go ahead. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Uh, thank you for taking my call. So I had a question uh, from uh, Mr. Nardozzi. Uh, we have... Um, uh, uh, since we bought the, our house in uh, Greenwich, we have had uh, uh, five uh, weeping hemlocks. And um, um, so they have become really, really big and leggy. So I was wondering how, what's the best way to trim them? I always go under the trees and try to remove dead branches, but they uh, go higher and higher. So... Um, if you can have a suggestion. Sure, yeah, so so hemlocks, obviously they wanna be big trees and you probably have seen a lot of hemlock hedges out there where they're trimmed uh, consistently a couple of times a year to stay more compact and even those will get big over time. It sounds like your tree has kind of already gotten big, so I'm, I'm not sure how much you really can do at this point to keep it uh, small. You can go in and cut the top off and, and kind of lower it a little bit, but you can't really go down and turn it into a, a shortish hedge at this point. So I guess the, the thing to do is to kind of decide, are you, are, can you live with a big tree <laughs> that's already there and letting it grow up and maybe changing some of the plants growing around it that are more shade tolerant? Or is it something that is just getting too big and maybe you need to bring an arborist in and, and remove some of those trees to make sure the light comes through? But once any of these trees, whether it be a cedar tree or a hemlock tree or a spruce tree, once they get big, it's hard to bring down their size at that point. Thank you for your call. And if you're holding, we'll get to more of your questions right after this break. I'm Lucy Nalpathancho, and this is Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Coming up Monday, this time last year, none of us anticipated we'd need a mask with us before leaving the house. On the next Where We Live, Yale epidemiologist Dr. Albert Coe joins us as we look back on this unprecedented year. And we also want to hear from you. How are you looking forward one year since Connecticut's pandemic lockdown? That conversation on Monday. Now, today we're focused on gardening with Charlie Nardozzi, my guest, a horticulturist and host of the Connecticut Garden 
Garden Journal on Connecticut Public Radio. He has a new book out, The Complete Guide to No-Dig Gardening. We've been hearing from a lot of listeners with questions. Uh, Last week, Charlie, we had a show about the decline of insects around the world and ways to help nurture insects when we depend on them for crucial jobs like pollination. Uh, More on plants to consider to help pollinators, but beyond thinking about monarchs and, and honeybees. Yes, there are so many different insects out there that are essential for not only for pollination, for food production, but just for our whole ecosystem. And the nice thing about no-dig gardening is that because we're not turning that soil and digging that soil, we're allowing the life cycle um, of these insects to be completed. Um, you know, a lot of times we'll go in um, early in the spring, even in perennial gardens. I know a lot of people who do this will go in this time of year. You've got a few warm days, so you're feeling good. You go in there and clean everything out. Well, there might be a lot of pollinating insects that were in some form of overwintering stage out there. And by removing them, you're taking them out of your garden uh, and maybe destroying them in the process. So the rule of thumb usually is once we have about a week of 50 degree days, I know we got a sum of them, but let's, let's wait a little longer. Uh, then by that time, usually these insects have gone through their life cycle, have moved on to the next stage, become adults and fly to, flew away, that kind of thing. Uh, so there are some techniques we can do beyond just growing the right plants that can really have a big impact on those pollinating insects in our garden. Uh, We also heard from Matthew who tweeted, can you elaborate more on pollinator pathways? My wife and I are trying to turn our thumbs green this spring and been wondering how to promote the bee population in the downtown Bethel uh, community. Matt, Matt, I'm wondering if you can help uh, Matt with his question. Sure. Pollinator Pathways is a great movement that started in Connecticut and down in the Wilton area and Greenwich in, in that area and also in partnership with some of the communities in New York State. And the idea was that pollinators uh, will do best if they don't just have like one little garden here, one little garden there. They actually need pathways so that they have bigger areas where there's more plants that are pollinator friendly. And so uh, groups of master gardeners and garden clubs have gotten together and started doing this, installing pollinator gardens in libraries and in schools and in public spaces, but also encouraging homeowners to grow pollinator uh, gardens and pollinator plants. So... If you go to Pollinator Pathways, just Google it, you'll find it. In Connecticut, you can find out there's a lot of resources there, and you can find out how your community in Bethel might be able to get involved. Again, you can join us with a question. Charlie Nardozzi is here. The number to call, 888-720-9677. Soraya is calling in from Wallingford. Go ahead, Soraya. Hi, it's Lucy and Charlie. Thank you. I'm a big fan of you. I just, uh, you know, you hear the saying, that they say when life gives you lemon, you make lemonade. And it's mm-hmm. my thing to do to cope with this pandemic. So last summer when we were driving through the farm stand, I told my husband to uh, stop and I went in real quick and make a quick purchase of the lemon tree. And I keep it inside the house. And I really, really enjoy having it in here. And I try to um, do a good job to keep it alive because we are not in the state that the weather would permit the tree to be living. So uh, I keep it inside the house, and guess what? This um, past few weeks, it started to flower, and I see some green that's coming out. It looked like I'm going to be getting the lemon. 
and I'm so oh. excited about it. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, maybe this pandemic is gonna be over very soon. This is a good sign. So uh, my question to you is, uh, what do I do that uh, I should maintain this lemon so I would get to have it for a long time? Because right now the leaf is really turning yellow. But I mean, I have about two dozen flowers, and I got uh, quite a few greens uh, of this lymph fruit. So if you could help me out there, that'd be great. Thank you. Yes, Soraya. It's so exciting that you have a lemon tree and you've turned your uh, lemon situation into lemonade with these trees is having beautiful flowers. They're nice to have those flowers, even in, if you just get flowers because of the smell that permeates the house. I love, we have a lemon tree too, a small one. Um, so it's nice you have the flowers and you're getting some fruit. Um, the leaves yellowing could be a bit of a concern. You might want to check on the undersides of the leaves and look for some little things. You might even need a magnifying glass to see them. They're called red spider mites. That's something that lemons and citrus in general will get indoors because it's kind of dry in most indoor situations. Um, if you see some of them there, or if you see little webbing, that's another sign that they're there, then you want to spray your plants with, uh, with uh, insecticidal soap. And, and also mist the plants every few days or so, just to spritz them a little bit. Um, that will help if that's the condition. Um, if you're not fertilizing them, that might be a thing to do. And there are citrus fertilizers. We use one from Espoma that's really nice. It's a liquid one, really easy just to add to the water. And when you're watering your lemons or any of your citrus, you want to let them dry down, not totally dry out, but really dry down, um, and then give them a good dose of water so that the water comes out the drainage holes, and then let them dry down again. You know, don't want to keep them evenly moist all the time. They're not really like that. Um, and that should help them continue to grow. If it continues to drop some of those leaves, you might want to sacrifice a few of those uh, lemons there so it doesn't spend too much energy making fruit and, and not enough energy sending out some new growth. Soraya has inspired me to maybe try a lemon tree, Charlie. <laughs> oh, you should do that, Lucy. You've got such a green thumb. You'd probably be great at it. I won't tell you what happened to my fig plant. We'll, we'll talk <laughs> offline. <laughs> okay. Dorothy's calling in from stores. Dorothy, do you have a question about lilies? Uh, well, basically, it's about my deer problem. And okay. so oh. I'm not able to grow uh, a lot of flowers. And now I, uh, they've recently started eating my potted geraniums outside. Wow. So I'm wondering what, you know, the best alternative would be to try and deter these uh, beautiful animals. Yes, yeah, there's so many of them out there, and they're hungry this time of year, so I'm not surprised they're even going after things like potted geraniums. Uh, you know, there's really two methods of deterring deer. One is fencing, of course, and depending upon your yard and, and how it's laid out and what you can have the capability of doing that's probably the, the best thing to do is to put either a tall fence or an electric fence something around it that's going to deter them the other would be uh, sprays so repellent sprays and you want to get the scent based repellent sprays the one i had the most success with is one called plant skid s-k-y-d-d skid means protection in swedish and they've actually used this product in sweden it's a, it's made from blood meal and slaughterhouse waste it's not a really pretty or, or nice smelling thing when you put it on. But the nice thing about it is that once you put it on after about maybe a day, not even a day, the smell dissipates for us, but it lingers for the deer for many days, many weeks. Um, so you, once you have it on, to, on the plant, um, it'll go for months where you don't have to reapply it. You can also get it in a pellet form where you can sprinkle it around your plants and maybe sprinkle it around the edge of your property and try to keep them out that way. 
The only downside I found of that is if you have dogs, they love to eat it. <laughs> Our dogs go crazy over it. So we're sticking with the liquid spray. It's a little safer for them. You're hearing Charlie Nardozzi here on Where We Live again. He's the host of the Connecticut Garden Journal and has a new book out, The Complete Guide to No Dig Gardening. We just have a few minutes left, so let's hit some more uh, listener calls. Laura is calling in from Madison. Hi, Laura. Hi. Um, I'd be interested in planting a privacy screen with bamboo, and I want to know a way that I can do that without causing um, it to grow into my neighbor's yard because they wouldn't like that very much. Um, is there a trick? Like, could I do a like a um, pot buried in the ground, or um, any any ideas? I'd be grateful for. Sure, Lara. Uh, so there are two different types of bamboo. There are running bamboo, which is what you're talking about, uh, the yellow grove bamboo, the ones you normally think of when you think of bamboo, that'll spread all over the place. And then there are clumping forms of bamboo. So you can do one of two things. You can get the running bamboo and put it in pots, like you're saying, and use that as a way to kind of limit them from sending out their, their runners and spreading out through the lawn areas all over. Or you can get the clumping types that tend to stay uh, more in place. Um, and there are some nurseries that will carry a lot of these and go over and get a nice selection of those. And that might be a nice way to create a little privacy, but still not have them take over the world like Bamboo wants to. Again, you can join us here on Where We Live. Find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search Where We Live. Joel's calling in from Old Greenwich. Joel, go ahead. Hi, I heard you talk about pollinator pathways and gardens. And I'm a local beekeeper here in Old Greenwich who help the pollinator pathway people here in Greenwich. And I just wanted to give a heads up to everybody who's looking to get into either beekeeping or starting or wanting to have hives on their property that are run by a beekeeper. Start planning that ahead of time because bees are sold in January and February in packages. And by mid-February, they're starting to run out. Um, after that, you need to start looking at ordering what they call nukes, which is a package of frames and honeycomb and a queen. And then those could be put in by your beekeeper. After that, you're really looking at someone catching swarms of bees for you. And so there's really a timing to this. So you need to plan ahead as you do for planting. Plan ahead for bees. Thank Good. you, Joel, Thanks, for Joel. calling in. We appreciate it. Uh, we just have a couple of minutes left. And Christine in Farmington wants to know, what is the biggest rhododendron she can plant to get uh, privacy? <laughs> The biggest rhododendron. Well, get the big leaf ones, you know, the, the real uh, large white, purple or red flowering one, the Nova Zemblas and those types. Uh, go to a garden center and look for those. The big leaf ones tend to be the ones that will get huge, 10, 15 feet tall and wide over time. So don't expect it to happen overnight. But if you're patient enough, you can get some beautiful rhododendron stands. Of course, it has to be in a part shade location and they like a, an acidic soil too. I love having you on, Charlie, because our listeners obviously appreciate gardening and I find that also um, so gratifying uh, to see that interest out there. Uh, just a couple of minutes left and I'm wondering if you've got some parting words for us for people who may be interested in starting a new garden and uh, just some encouragement because it does take many years uh, to learn uh, as as we, we both know. <laughs> yes and so I, I, I always encourage people who want to start in gardening, and we have, like we've mentioned earlier in the show, a lot of new gardeners out there, uh, to start small, keep it simple, 
If you're doing vegetables and annual flowers, do a little raised bed, maybe a container. Um, get comfortable with the plants you're growing. Grow things you like to eat or like to have as flowers and maybe just grow a few of those, not like a whole big garden. You know, don't try to take, off, take on too much uh, right out the gate. And then once you've had some success, you kind of build on that. Um, and that usually is the way most of us start gardening. As you know, Lucy, you never really stop expanding. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> we keep saying we're not going to, but every year, oh, we should put another tree over there or another shrub over there. <laughs> but it's, it's a labor of love. It's a joy. It's a lifelong occupation. And it's good not only for you and your family and your friends, but for the environment and for everyone else in your community. We heard from someone who is a farmer that says the state of Connecticut has something called Farm Link, where uh, farmers will share land with someone who wants to farm for people, especially who live in apartments and don't have the space. So that's a really interesting program. We'll look into that. Uh, but Charlie Narduzzi, we thank you so much for your time. And we uh, good luck with uh, scrubbing those pots out. That's Those are my plans, too, uh, this weekend. <laughs> thank you, Lucy. It's been great being on. Charlie Nardozzi again is the host of the Connecticut Garden Journal on Connecticut Public Radio. He's got so many great books. I love New England Month by Month Gardening, and he has a new one out, The Complete Guide to No-Dig Gardening. We'll tweet out some links at where we live. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Carmen Baskoff was on the phones. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. We hope you have a great weekend. <laughs>